your positive, positive, positive imprint. 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 Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Hello, this is Catherine, your host of Your Positive Imprint, the variety show that features worldwide conversations with people whose positive actions are inspiring positive achievements. Check out my awesome new video over on YouTube, World's Most Inspiring Positive Imprints. Find it on my channel, Your Positive Imprint. I share my message with you along with loads and loads of photos of the positive imprints I've had on my show over the last year. Check it out on YouTube on my channel, Your Positive Imprint. Also, join my email list. Follow me on Instagram and Facebook, Your Positive Imprint. This is a free podcast. Support me by hitting that subscribe or follow button at my website, yourpositiveimprint.com, or iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Your Positive Imprint. What's your PI? This episode is sponsored by Snoot Spray. Snoot Spray, as seen on the Daily Buzz, keeps your nose and sinuses clear and is drug-free. Use Snoot Spray daily or for post-nasal drip and drainage from colds, flu, mold, and other nasty bugs or during allergy season. Products available and selling quickly from snootspray.com and Amazon. Well, a few months ago, Dr. Helen Phillips was a guest on my show. She is an oceanographer studying Antarctic circumpolar current. Well, she introduced me to one of her colleagues, Professor Nathan Bindoff. Wow. And his background in physical oceanography is so extensive. There is no way I can cover his massive research studies, but we can narrow it down. Well, Nathan is a professor of physical oceanography at the University of Tasmania's Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies. My gosh, he was the coordinating lead author on the Oceans chapter in the fourth Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change in 2007, in which he was awarded a certificate for his own contribution of Al Gore winning the Nobel Peace Prize. That is just so amazing. And then again in 2014, he took a lead in the fifth assessment climate change report. Well, Professor Bindoff and his colleagues documented some of the first evidence of the high melt rates of the Antarctic ice sheet. His most recent work is on documenting the decline in oxygen content of the oceans and dynamics of the Southern Ocean. When he's not on a boat doing research, he tries to be on his own boat that he built from wood, a hobby that he so much enjoys. And now he is here to talk about all of this and what the future holds for our planet. Professor Nathan Bindoff, thank you so much for coming on the show to share your amazing positive imprints. Thank you, Catherine. That's a, a lovely introduction. Well, and this is so incredible to finally meet you after reading so many articles and reading your research and hearing about you from other researchers in your area. Well, there's so much to talk about, and I'm going to kind of let you guide as to what research you want to chat about, but there are some questions that I know that listeners have and that I have. But first, who is Nathan? Oh, Nathan's a, uh, a practical, pragmatic sort of guy that uh, <laughs> likes, likes to... Um, actually, I, I often uh, uh, draw parallels to uh, parboiled detective stories where, you know, the, the, the lone detective is out there 
or private eye um, is out there and he's taking the clues and kind of discovering something. And, and that's kind of how I feel about science, actually. You know, you, you look at observations, you're, um, you sort of discover things, you compare them, you kind of get evidence and you build a story. And it's just like that parboiled detective guy, those parboiled detective stories where you kind of figure out what's going on and then you write it up and turn it into a paper. And the pragmatic part of me is the part that likes to um, turn this sort of discoveries in science into things that are kind of important and relevant to people um, who, who think about the environment. Um, so, you know, the participation in IPCC, for instance, uh, was sort of a fluke, a, a wonderful fluke, by the way. Um, I was in the corridor one day and one of my ex-supervisors came by and he said, oh, you should, you should nominate for IPCC. And that's all he said. And that night I went away, I uh, put in a nomination and that began my career in IPCC. I was uh, invited to be a coordinating lead author in that fourth assessment report, which was the one that actually kind of led to a moment in history where the rejection of climate change had been very strong through 2005, 2006. And then suddenly the Stern report came out and that talked about the economic consequences of climate change. And Al Gore had his movie um, on the inconvenient truth. And then finally, this fourth assessment came out. And in 2000 and late 2007, 2008, we had a changed nar narrative around uh, the acceptance of climate change and the need to act. And it was a terrific moment. And then it was sort of topped off by IPCC winning with Al Gore the uh, uh, Nobel Peace Prize. And, and, and I actually like the fact that it's not a, uh, a prize for scientific excellence. It's not a prize for intellectual uh, endeavor. Actually, it's a prize for creating an opportunity, if you like, for peace. So, so I like that too. So you can see I, I like the observations. I like the detail. I like a narrative. And then actually, if it does good, if it does good, then that makes me very happy. <laughs> well, you mentioned a couple things here, and I want to backtrack because what you were talking about with your discovery, you have this absolute wonderful quote that I really, really love that you said, and it was, I don't know what year it was, uh, but it, it was obviously in the beginning of your career, and I'm going to quote you. You said, when I commenced my career... The question of whether the ocean state had changed was completely open. It was a voyage of discovery. And you said that extremely eloquently, but yet knowing that there's something that must be discovered and you're on this voyage and it is open to what is happening. And then now that you're talking about the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, there are some questions, and some of those questions are, why 
did this even start? Because there had to be some momentum from somebody or a group of scientists somewhere in the world that saw a need to begin this panel. So do, can you talk about the history of the IPCC? I, I, I can. You've, you've actually raised two questions, the history of IPCC and how that began. And the other one was actually about the state of the ocean. So let, let's talk IPCC for a moment. IPCC was a, a vision of, um, uh, and the name will come to me in a moment, and that vision was an understanding that the changing composition of the atmosphere, so this was from measurements of atmospheric CO2, the changing composition of the atmosphere was going to influence the planet. And at that moment, there was a decision made, and it was in the time of uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, a decision was made to create a panel. And that panel was a joint effort between the United Nations Environment Program and the World Meteorological uh, Organization. And what happened was that that panel was created very perceptively. It excluded, it's not quite true, but it basically excluded non-governmental organisations. So they made it a report to governments. And because it's a United Nations process, that process demands that every country has a, what they call a focal point, and that focal point in each country is the avenue by which the IPCC reports uh, and their development and their commissioning is uh, created within each of the countries that participate. United Nations is 195 countries and almost all participate in the IPCC process. So this process immediately meant that Every report is well understood at some levels of governments. That's unusual relative to other kinds of reports. And there's a similar report around uh, uh, chlorofluorocarbons uh, in the upper atmosphere, and there's a similar process there. So that's basically the process around uh, the IPCC. It was created in 1992, I think, and it came from the inspiration of Bert Bolin. Bert Bolin was a uh, Swedish uh, atmospheric uh, scientist, famous actually, uh, and it was him plus a couple of others. And the first report was quite very was very thin actually. It didn't even say that humans were influencing climate. But curiously, that report was enough to create the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And that's the body that runs the Conference of Parties every year, which negotiates uh, the processes around emissions and hopefully emissions reductions uh, as we go into the future. Incredible. So, and now you, well, we'll get to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change because there was some discussion that was had with regard to the rise in temperature. So you've given a wonderful explanation on the IPCC, and I appreciate that because I was 
unaware of some of the history, and I was definitely unaware in how much of the partaking you have had in this historical and most important piece that is going to take us and is taking us into the future with regard to legislation. So, okay, and then you wanted to talk about the state of the ocean when you made that comment. Yeah. yeah. So IPCC evolves, actually. And in the first report, there was no mention of the oceans. And in the Oh, there was sec- no mention of oceans? Correct. And then the second assessment, there was... Uh, no mention really either and then in the third assessment they talked about sea level and then in the fourth assessment they actually introduced an oceans chapter and and the reason there was an oceans chapter was introduced was because there had been a bit of a revolution going on in the oceanography community it was uh and it goes to the first question you asked The oceans were considered to be static, unchanging. They had so much inertia that they were basically unable to change. They were a kind of a fixed flywheel, if you like, um, circulating the global oceans. And then increasingly, oceanographers and atmospheric scientists have understood that there was El Nino... Uh, And then we came to understand actually the deep ocean was changing subtly as well. And we found that that it was starting to appear on global scales. So what really happened was that we understood that the oceans too were responding, that they weren't static and that they were changing. And that knowledge and the amount of literature that was starting to accumulate at that time allowed for the introduction of this chapter around oceans. It's the building of the momentum around the science. There was an increased realisation that the oceans were important, that they were changing and evolving. At that time, uh, we believed that the ocean uh, sea level change was through primarily through uh, thermal expansion. So that's where you warm up the ocean and it expands and that's the biggest contributor to the rising sea levels. That's actually changing again so that rising sea levels are now dominated by the melt of the ice caps, both Antarctica, Greenland and uh, the glaciers, mountain glaciers as well. So the heating of the oceans isn't the biggest component to rising sea level anymore. So that's a new level of knowledge that we've actually got. So this is part of this voyage of discovery, if you like, where we're actually learning more, progressively more about the Earth system in response to climate change. When you're talking about the melting of the ice sheets, that was something that you were involved with in the measurement of and the discovery of. In part. Um, with colleagues. I, with colleagues. Um, so I wrote some early papers around uh, the melt of the Amory ice shelf. In fact, I remember a conversation. I said, oh, 50% of this uh, ice shelf is melting uh, from the ocean, from the underside. It's a paper that's buried in the past, but I do remember the glaciologist telling me that was impossible. Well, 
actually uh, what's happened is this has become a prime research uh, activity here in Hobart and elsewhere in the world mm-hmm. because the capacity for those ice sheets to have a huge, huge impact on rising sea level um, is enormous. I've used a lot of superlatives there, but it's true. There were some papers just recently which some people are backing away from a little bit, but they were predicting 16 metres, projecting 16 metres of sea level from Antarctica alone by 2500. So think about 16 metres of sea level. That's enormous. Mm -hmm. Now, these estimates are reducing, but they're still not, they're still very large. Just recently, in the report that we did for the report on oceans and cryosphere and a changing climate. So this report was just released in September. The governments insisted on showing the sea level rise projections out to 2300. So for a lot of people, 2300 is a long way away. We don't care. But those sea level projections were showing at the upper range, five metres of future sea level rise by 2300. Now, just to give a uh, context, um, I think if it's eight metres, we can row in our boat to the footstep of uh, Capitol Hill and step out. Uh, You know, uh, most of Florida has disappeared. Uh, South Australia, I think if it goes to eight metres, we can have an ocean in the middle of Australia. So, So, you know, these are very significant, profound possibilities for uh, future uh, sea level in an unmitigated world. That's the key. And so, so it hasn't happened, of course. Um, it's, it's something that humans could materially alter by making certain decisions. So it's sort of a value judgment. We can have this hotter, higher sea level world if we choose, or we can actually step back we mitigate emissions and not have that hotter, higher sea level world. Um, and there are some distinct benefits, I think. <laughs> That's my value judgment um, if we were to reduce our emissions to zero. I'm a very futuristic thinker, so this has always been something when we start hearing about the the gases and the ozone layer and then climate change, it's, well, what can we do We need legislation so that people who don't really know what to do until their government tells them what to do, I guess that's not a great way to put it, but there are people who won't change until it's legislated. So some of the language we might use, we scientists might use, is that we society needs a license to uh, reduce emissions. Society has the license to omit them. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We now need a license to reduce them to zero. And uh, that is actually something that no individual can accomplish, right? Right. So so it therefore means that no individual country can actually accomplish it alone. So it does require a genuine collaboration of all the nations to actually agree and then follow a pathway to reduced emissions uh, to, to kind of avoid the worst outcomes of climate change. 
Some, yes. some people may not realise, but we've already committed to quite a bit of climate change, right? We've already come one degree of warming since uh, the instrumental record began, say, in the 1850s. Now, one degree of global warming means that actually over Australia, it's 1.4 times that. Uh, over the um, Arctic, it's uh, even more. And over the tropics, it's actually less. It's a global average. Some areas will have larger temperature changes than others. We've already committed to that. We can already see that uh, the water cycle over the planet has been altered. We can already see that the the uh, Greenland and Antarctica are losing increased mass. That's something that's become very obvious in the last 20 years, part of this voyage of discovery. The... These, these things mean that we've already committed to those changes. If we switched off our emissions tomorrow, right, which is, would be an extraordinary thing, we would mm-hmm. still warm up by another 0.3 to 0.4 degrees. If we want to avoid 0.5, we'd have very little time left, actually, if you think about it. Because that, because if we've committed to a further 0.3 degrees, we've come 0.1, we've only got 0.2 of headroom. <laughs> So, yes. so, so you can see that it's now becoming a very urgent problem if you want to uh, sort of minimise the consequences of climate change. Well, and you said something that is so profound, and you didn't even say it today. You said it many, many years ago, and it was, uh, I'll, I'll shorten it, but basically you said, if the temperature rose and continues to rise, and of course, since you said this, the temperature has risen, sea levels could rise by three to four meters and Greenland could disappear. There would be at least a 20% increase in fire danger and catastrophic fire events would be more likely to occur. Uh, the fire season this year has been an extraordinary wake-up call for yeah. uh for Australia and the wildfires in the USA have been, I think, also a mm-hmm. uh, yes uh, had extraordinary impacts. The report that you referred to, we wrote, I guess, about five years ago, and that report basically pointed to the fact that these extreme conditions are going to occur more frequently. So we said twice as often, but they actually affect a bigger area uh, as well. Um, and then when you put those two together, they turn out to be four times more workload. It's like a 20% per decade uh, increase. So these are non-trivial changes that are emerging because of those, um, because of that warming. And it's primarily because of the warming. Sure. Uh, there are other things that go into fire, but there's that's primarily because of the warming that goes uh, associated with the increasing the fire danger. So, so yes, we did talk about that five years ago, and I'm off to meet the premier today, and I'll probably mention it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, it it seems so slow, and and I'll tell you, in my country. President Bush, the first President Bush, he wanted to have legislation with regard to climate change. And his campaign talked about climate change back at that time. That was after, uh, let's see, I was pretty young, after Reagan. Yeah. Congress didn't 
pass much legislation there. Money was pushed through during the Carter administration with regard to research on alternative energy. Yep. We've had some very progressive, future, futuristic-type thinkers, uh, but things just didn't get done the way I... I would have liked to have seen it. Now let's go back to the glaciers because I think that is just an interesting part of your research is that you found and your team when you were out, I believe it was down in Antarctica when you discovered that it was the bottom that was melting due to the warmer currents. Yeah, so so we did a couple of things actually. We... One of the things that became obvious was that the uh, interaction between the ocean and the ice sheet was quite significant. And so we actually did a wintertime voyage. We went to Antarctica in July. So that's our southern hemisphere winter. We were there against the continent in an um, icebreaker and making measurements right in front of of the of a um, it's not not the biggest glacier uh, it's called the Mertz glacier it's actually that glacier is now broken off but it was a source of very dense what we call Antarctic bottom water very dense waters some of the densest waters in the world and because they're dense they'll actually flow down the continental slope so they'll start off on the continental shelf they'll flow down the continental slope and then they end in the abyss. And they actually drive a circulation that we call the overturning circulation. And this overturning circulation is an important component. Global thermohaline circulation in the world. It's a driver of the deep ocean circulation. And as a consequence, we were there exactly to study that flow. Now, I've talked about the deepest ocean, but right there in front of the glacier, you also see, and it's often the case, uh, very fresh waters that reflect the melt off the bottom of the glaciers themselves. And so we estimated that melt rate and we came to understand how much was being lost by the ice sheet there in winter. What's new and more important to the story of climate change is we've realized that these glaciers are thinning and so they're losing, they're not in equilibrium. If they're in equilibrium, sea level would be unchanged, but actually they're thinning and so sea level is actually going up as a consequence and the ice sheet itself on average is actually losing mass. So it's transferring mass in the Antarctic ice sheet itself into the oceans and causing sea level to go up. And that voyage was the first ever against the Antarctic continent in winter. That was 1998. Wow. See, so long ago. (laughs) You're making me feel old. (laughs) No, no. no. (laughs) Just the fact that that was a couple of decades ago and, and I still feel like we're still in the same spot because I am so much for trying to get something done and saving our planet for future everything not just human population but animals vegetation and anyway okay which which RV vessel were you on 
So, so that that voyage was actually on the relatively newly commissioned Aurora Australis. So that was the Australian icebreaker. That ship has now come to end of life, and it's uh, and it's about to be replaced. Not quite next year, or uh, there'll be a new. Australian icebreaker that will replace the Aurora Australis. Was it funded back then by your ministry? Yeah, it was. Uh, most many nations have icebreakers actually to work in Antarctica because we've got sea ice and the Antarctic ice sheet. It was both a science ship and also a resupply uh, ship. And the moment that we actually got that uh, icebreaker the Australian Antarctic research took a quantum step upwards. That vessel gave Australia new capabilities that it didn't have prior to 1992. And as a scientist who you're going out to the sheets, the ice sheets for the first time in your life, think back of how that must have felt. (laughs) Yeah, you're, you're kind of asking me a very personal question. Sure. And and uh, there's a persona behind the scientific. Yeah, yeah, and I understand, and and it's it's interesting. I I was sort of um, a little bit hesitant. I have to say, there you go. I was a little bit hesitant <laughs> about going to uh, Antarctica and working at sea. I've spent more than two years at sea now uh, in my <laughs> career, right? So I've uh, got over the hesitancy. Yes. But um, the first trip I was, it was actually a particularly rough trip. I remember kind of feeling only 90%, 90% of the time. <laughs> uh, and uh, it was that was a tough voyage, actually, and, and you know, um, shaped my life. Seagoing life is actually uh, very pleasant. Once you get into the rhythm of it, it's a very simple life. And in the case of uh, research in Antarctica itself, you get the most fantastic views. You know, you're privileged in a way. You you see these ice sheets. They're, they're cliffs right there in front of the ocean, and they're brilliantly white. And then uh, the green of the green to sort of clear blue of the ocean and the contrast in colour is uh, striking. And, and then sometimes you see these ice sheets, they have icebergs and they're flat tabular kinds of icebergs. Icebergs are always flat and tabular, typically in the Antarctic, quite unlike the icebergs in the, from the Greenland ice sheet. And, but often you see surf on the, they have wave cut platforms on them and you can see surf, uh, there. And people have. Oh, that's cool. And some people have actually surfed them. So, so th- th- there are these very beautiful icebergs. There's this, uh, sea life, some extraordinary sea life. But the thing. I'm that, sure. The thing that's grabbed me the most actually, uh, and what allows me to keep on going back is the science that's associated with it. The science, in the end, is the driver of this activity, and the the uh, joy of seeing it all is kind of a peripheral thing. <laughs> hate, hate to say it that way, but actually that's what uh, makes it for repeat trips. 
Well, it certainly shows your dedication to not just the work that you're enjoying doing, but to the future of decision-making of our planet. And you're coming back with the statistics and the projections. And, and if we keep going the way we're going and things don't get changed... Um, um, you're quite right. But, but I'm not actually frustrated by the world. I feel personally that I've actually done the work I've yeah. made made with the measurements, we've reported the science, I've worked with IPCC with literally you know, uh, 200 to 300 scientists with a similar kind of thinking. We've put these assessments together with um, literally seven to 10,000 different papers in it. We've assessed it, we've written the reports, they've been communicated to government. We have actually done our job and in that sense, I, I'm not frustrated because I can see that actually to make the decision and for society to agree to act on it is a big thing too. And we're in that process. So my task is really to continue to do that job, to communicate what's going on, how things are changing, why it might be urgent, what are the consequences? Because that's, that's the projections part. You know, we can look a bit into the future. If we continue on this path, this is what it will mean. And, and if we continue to do that, then hopefully the rest of society can find the solutions that allow us to transform to the new world where we don't have emissions going into the atmosphere. We limit the amount of damage caused by climate change and uh, we address the other problems that we need to solve. And that's a deeply society-related question. And I've, I think scientists have done a terrific job in kind of communicating it. It's deeply political to get to perhaps uh, where we might like to be, mm-hmm. but, but it's, it's we're in this moment where we're trying to get there. That's why we have these institutions like IPCC, United Nations, the World Meteorological Organization, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It's why they have a meeting every year. Every year, ministers and bureaucrats of every country actually go and discuss how to make the decisions, how to, they may not succeed, but they actually do do it every year. So, you know, there's a considerable effort going into the process and hopefully we'll turn the corner and uh, really have action. Um, and there are pathways to get there. Scientifically, there are pathways to get there. And then sociologically and decision-making, let's see if we can get to those paths. Wow. And you've been great at what you are doing, inspiring. And so... Well, thank you. Um, and so the other half of it is, can we, society, accept that, make the value decision and transform itself? And the nice thing, I think, is that um, uh, 20 years ago, renewables may not have been so cheap. And you can see the huge increase in renewables in the landscape. And you can see many of the transformations of the energy business that are going on. And you can see the pressure on the coal industry. So you can see that there are forces and pressures trying to change the pathway that we've, that we were on. 
Um, emissions are still going up. We haven't turned the corner, but you can see that we're, uh, there's action. Not enough, maybe. You sent me this link to a really interesting website on notes to Earth, letters to Earth. Yeah. And it's they're from scientists. <laughs> That's what was so intriguing. A lot of the letters there were from scientists. And let's see, that website was uh, letters, letters2earth.com. It's for anybody to write letters to Earth and to talk about what they see with regard to our planet in crisis. And your letter was very much everything what you just stated. I don't know if you have the letter in front of you. No, I but don't, but it was, it was a letter of hope. Yes. Uh, and you're quite right. That, that narrative I just gave, maybe it's my worldview, but that narrative I gave was one of precisely about hope. It was about the hope that we could collaborate globally to and and actually uh, understand the innovations that we can embrace and change the course, uh, so to speak. And it does require the world to do it together. It does. So I have a question about what is going on right now with the research ship that went out there. There is a voyage um, to Antarctica where they were going to deploy and have deployed a autonomous underwater vehicle beneath the Thwaites Glacier. And the Thwaites Glacier is one of the most rapidly evolving uh, glaciers on Antarctica. And it's one of sort of concern uh, because it is sort of a gateway to uh, a more significant loss of mass by the Antarctic ice sheet. And that... Um, Autonomous underwater vehicle, a submarine, if you like, but it's got no people in it, is making measurements of this fresh layer that sits between the ocean and the ice sheet. And it's really the melt of the ice sheet being carried away by the ocean. And they are reporting that the temperatures they're seeing are, are more than they expected. So what that really means is that they're the ocean, the waters offshore are actually interacting with that ice sheet more strongly than they might have get first guessed. Okay, so that sounds a little bit like some research that NASA was doing over in Greenland. Yes, there'll be similar sort of research going on there too. Interesting. Well, I'll be interested to see that, especially since I had Josh Willis from NASA who was talking about the Greenland uh, he called the project OMG, oh my gosh, but it was Oceans Melting Greenland. Yes. So I know Josh Willis, and Greenland is very interesting. It's quite different to Antarctica and the way it's melting. So uh, there's the ocean component, which we originally thought was small. So Antarctica is so cold that the surface of Antarctica uh, only melts in very few places. And so most of the melt of Antarctica is from underneath via the oceans. Uh, originally, we thought that Greenland was entirely melted by uh, from the surface and not from below by the oceans. And what Josh is showing is actually there's a very substantial component of uh, ocean melt of Greenland as well as the surface melt. 
So th this is, once again, just another discovery around our world. Yes. And so now you're studying the oxygen levels? Yeah. So, so oxygen, a lot of people um, don't understand that the ocean is a, a very small reservoir of oxygen, obviously critical for fish to uh, live off and much of life. Uh, within the oceans. But it turns out that if you make measurements of the oxygen content in the oceans, there are some areas where it's actually declining. And this, this work that we're doing is actually about documenting those declines. And there are some particularly big declines in the equatorial zone of the Pacific and also in the Indian and Atlantic Oceans and there are declines at high latitudes as well. These declines aren't so aren't so big that the uh, fish can't uh, can't actually still function but the declines are altering the distribution to some extent of fish in the equatorial parts and it's it's just reflecting the fact that we're on this voyage of discovery where the uh, oceans are changing and oxygen is just another one of those things that's changed. And, you know, it's it's not talked about a, a lot, but it's actually a thing that's going to have influence, particularly in the equatorial zone, the future equatorial zone. In the past records, the paleo-oceanographic records we have, it's often talked about uh, the um, chain variations in oxygen in the global oceans. So geologists have understood that there are uh, changes in the oceans on long time scale. The difference here is that these changes that we're talking about are connected to human activity. So it's uh, human-induced oxygen decline. If, if we're talking about that area, is there not fisheries that take place there? Yeah, yeah, there are. So in uh, the United States, there have been some famous uh, kills of crabs washed up on the Oregon coast. And these are connected to this um, changing oxygen levels uh, in the equatorial ocean, actually. And at various times, those low oxygen zones catch up with the crabs, which are sitting out there on the continental shelf. They suddenly don't have enough oxygen, so they actually uh, asphyxiated, I suppose, um, and then washed up. That is an example of the growth of this oxygen minimum layer in that zone. So, yes, it is influencing uh, marine life and their distribution, you know, um, so it's so it's a sort of a, a localized catastrophe for those animals. Tuna populations have tended to move a little bit in response to these oxygen content changes. There are other kinds of effects on uh, marine wildlife. It's it's always complex, but that's actually what's going on. And uh, the project that I was that that I was uh, referring to there is about understanding how that oxygen is actually changing the global oceans and we have relatively few observations for it so it's it's a um, it's not as detailed or accurate picture as we might have for ocean temperatures
Oh, but you'll get that. <laughs> With a few more measurements, we'll get there. Right. Yeah. And, and so explain again how that is what we're doing that's causing this oxygen decline. Yeah. So, so this is um, something we've detailed in our most recent IPCC report, actually. There are three things going on, if you like. The atmosphere is warming up. The surface ocean warms up at a faster rate than the uh, deeper ocean. And because the surface ocean is warming up at a faster rate, uh, warmer water is lighter. And so uh, the surface waters are becoming more buoyant relative to the deeper waters. And now oxygen mostly gets into the deeper waters because there's a what we call ventilation. Literally, you know, uh, the exchange between the atmosphere and the deep ocean um, and that process is inhibited or reduced or slowed by the warming up of those surface waters because it's actually physically harder to take the surface water and move it into the deeper ocean because it's physically harder there's less oxygen being moved into the deeper ocean so when i say deeper below 100 meters and as a consequence of biological activity in that depth range, the oxygen is consumed and it uh, becomes lower. So this decline in oxygen is really caused by surface ocean warming and a reduced rate of exchange between the atmosphere and the, and the deeper ocean below 100, 200, 300 metres. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've been documenting, and we can attribute it to the human influence because we know that uh, in following the scientific method, if you like, uh, models that do not have changing uh, CO2, do not have warming of the surface ocean, will still have the same equilibrium oxygen inside, but when you warm the ocean progressively from rising greenhouse gases, you find that the pattern of oxygen change uh, agrees with what's observed and you can formally attribute it to that rise in um, CO2 in the atmosphere. So the response looks like climate change and that's why we say it's to do with human activity. Okay, and, and I know that you have this really important meeting here coming up in just a little bit so we don't have a whole lot of time left so is there anything you wanted to cover that we haven't covered yet so Catherine I can talk quite a lot as you might have uh, appreciated but let me say it's been a pleasure to chat about these bigger picture issues with a little bit of extra time versus a normal media event it allows I think a um, kind of a nice discourse about, you know, the problem that is confronting the Earth. I'm I'm very optimistic that we can actually solve these this this particular problem because I can see the innovation that we require, the technologies we require. I can see that there's uh, potential for the transformation transformations that we require to occur, and so I'm actually hopeful that we can accelerate the progress and actually minimise the uh, problem at hand. And, and, of course, I can then just go back to doing ordinary old oceanography. Don't have to uh, 
uh, <laughs> work on these socially relevant problems, become the academic that I was. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it's been very interesting and fascinating time to be uh, working in the oceans. The oceans, unlike meteorology, the oceans are uh, uh, 20 years behind the meteorological community. And so I've actually entered this career at a, at a kind of an exciting moment where we've kind of become to understand much more about the oceans and the, we've developed uh, tools and methods to kind of explore it and see uh, how it's changing and how it's moving and how it's responding to um, climate change, for instance. And then I've been a participant in these things. So the participant in IPCC, uh, we had a report just last year. So I've, I, I feel I feel actually that uh, if there are any budding scientists out there, you can, um, if you do it right, it can be a very exciting and exhilarating career. Well, Nathan, you're extremely inspiring and your positive imprints are certainly global. Your imprints are such a legacy because this research is for yesterday, today, and the future. And I commend you for taking on the role that you are taking, not just as a scientist, but as a spokesperson for the rest of the world with regard to legislation. I think that I want to end with something that you said that I just loved this. <laughs> Nathan, I'm going to share my screen with you because this letter that you wrote to Earth is very inspiring and it just shows your optimism and everything that you believe in for the future of our Earth. So I'm going to just ask you if you can read this letter to Earth. Thank you, Catherine. From time to time, I do think about the future. My dream is that the picture we so frequently paint will be different. Not the catastrophe that is so frequently forecast, but a world where the pressing problems are cut off circumvented with human ingenuity and self-realization and mobilized by collaborative effort. A world where humans decide the future to be sustainable and transformed, and a transformed one that successfully reconciles climate change, our needs for food, energy, and all of life. That is what I imagine we can achieve. Professor Nathan Bindoff, Thank you so much for your inspiration and your commitment to science and research. Thank you for sharing on your positive imprint. Thank you, Catherine. To learn more about Professor Nathan Bindoff, head over to University of Tasmania's website. That's utas.edu.au or simply Google Nathan Bindoff. There is loads of information on his climate change research and his last name is B-I-N-D-O-F-F. -F. My website, yourpositiveimprint.com. Thanks so much for listening and be well out there. Don't forget, hit that subscribe or follow button now. Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.?